This is Undefiled, a podcast dedicated to demystifying biblical truths about sex, love, and marriage. I'm your host, David Grams. You should know about me that I love marriage, and it's because I love marriage so much that I want Christians to experience thriving relationships and marriages, a healthy and shameless sexuality, and to be able to talk about these things boldly and confidently with anyone. By listening to this podcast, you'll discover that most of what we think we know about biblical marriage and sexuality has been adulterated by cultural additives. My wife, Allie, and I implore you to renew your mind to a pure biblical understanding and your relationships will be transformed. Whether you're single, dating, married, divorced, I believe this podcast will bless you immensely. If you're interested in reading any of my books, visit valiantmi.com store. Let's get to it. Welcome, Undefiled Podcast viewers and listeners. My name is David Grams. I host this podcast, and this is the second episode in a series that I'm doing, actually reviewing my newest book, Undefiled, subtitled Rediscovering the Supernatural Power of Sex as God Intended It. You can see it on my bookshelf here. Undefiled is the one with the white cover. And we're in this series that we're currently on with the podcast, walking through the chapters of the book as a resource for you guys to listen to or watch together with reading the book itself. And then you can use both the podcast and the book together as a resource for a small group. If you guys want to walk through discussions around sexuality in a way that's real, authentic, down to earth, in a way that's ultimately profitable, fruitful. So today's episode covers chapter two of the book. Now, chapter two of the book is called Pleasure-God's Idea. And the the uh, the idea, really, for this chapter and for this episode is that pleasure, which is a word that the world often associates with sensuality uh, and what you may call something naughty, something gross, something sinful, is actually a word that God coined. Pleasure is God's word, uh, as in God invented the word, if you will, and he's the one who created it. He's the one who created pleasure. And so we're going to talk about associating sexuality in God's intended context with the highest form of pleasure that we can possibly experience in a human relationship. And so as kind of a preface here, I want to let you guys know that one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is the ability to confidently and fully associate their sexuality with purely something good, something pleasurable. And I don't mean pleasurable in the sense of it being sensual, but I mean pleasurable in the something in the sense that it produces good and it's life-giving to you. That's something that a lot of people have a difficult time doing uh, when it comes to sexuality. And so today we're going to talk about what you need to know, what you need to understand in order to ensure that when you think of sexuality, when you think of it, your sexual relationship is something that's life-giving to you. It's revitalizing, it's energizing, it's, it's, it's a fond memory of sorts, something good to think about, okay? So first things first, we're going to talk about Genesis. I mentioned this in the previous episode too. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, God finishes the creation. He makes the lights in the heavens. He makes the earth. He makes the sea. He makes the plants and the animals, everything in the earth and in the, in, in the universe. And then all of a sudden, he creates man and woman as Adam and Eve. He creates Adam first, then he creates Eve. And here's something we notice. After he finishes the creation on the sixth day, it says on the seventh day that God rested. And then it says 
before it says he rested, that God saw that it was very good. Everything that he made was very good. Now, here's why this is important. The word very in Hebrew there in Genesis 1 means extremely or intensely. Abundantly is a better word as well. And then the word good means pleasant, pleasurable, fruitful, profitable, desirable, healthy, life-giving. And so essentially when you put those two words together with the, the depth of their meaning, what you get is God saw all of creation and said that it was extremely intensely and abundantly pleasant, pleasurable, desirable, and good. That's what it actually means. So, and in the previous episode, we talked about that sex is something God created before sin came into the world. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. He told them to invest in their sexual relationship before sin came into the world. So if sex pre-existed sin, then sex originally was part of what God says was the very good aspect of creation. It was the extremely pleasurable aspect of creation. So what does this mean then, getting things started here? God says his ideal for our sexuality is that it is, by his definition, extremely pleasurable, okay? Now, we have to make a distinction between God's kind of pleasure and the world's kind of pleasure. Because when you think about the world's kind of pleasure, here's what, what we generally think of. I mentioned this earlier. We think of something naughty. We think of something sinful, something that feels good, something that's sensual. So when we think of pleasure, we think of like a high you get from a drug. We think of an orgasm. It's, it's all about the sensual, the natural feeling of pleasure. But here's the thing. What the world calls pleasure is actually counterfeit. The world, the unbelieving secular world, the godless part of this world has no idea what real pleasure is. Now there's a verse in Psalms chapter 16 or Psalm 16, verse 11, where the psalmist David says, show me the path of life in your presence. Presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, at the right hand of God are pleasures, same Hebrew word, forevermore. Okay, so here's what's important about this. God's kind of pleasure is forevermore. God is eternal. What he offers is eternal life, right? So in Romans 6, it says that the wages of sin is death in verse 23, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what God gives, because it's his essence, is an eternal experience of himself. And that's why David in Psalm 16 associates God's right hand, and he associates his presence with pleasure that lasts forever, Okay. So here's the key distinction between God's definition of good and the world's definition of good. When God says something it's good, it is pleasure, goodness, and life that lasts forever. In Psalms, I believe it's chapter 10, verse 22, it says that the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. What is the point? When God gives something good, it doesn't include any sorrow. There's no side effects to it, right? So when you watch a commercial, it's got a drug and it says, you know, it'll really help you feel better in this part of your body, but there's all these negative side effects. And sometimes they're so bad, it says there's like risk of heart attack. And sometimes it'll just throw death out there, right? And so that's the way sin is. When the devil presents a person with a temptation to sin, what he's doing is putting actually a God-given covering of pleasure upon it. He's guising it with 
a counterfeit pleasure to make it attractive to us. So we go after that thing that we think will make us feel good, but it, it brings with it side effects of death, decay, suffering, and corruption. And so that is what identifies the world's kind of pleasure. It is temporary, it is momentary, and ends in death and decay. But when God creates and offers something good, it is eternally good. It is forever good and forever pleasurable. That means it's pleasurable to look forward to, it's pleasurable to experience, it's pleasurably to, pleasurable to look back on, it's pleasurable to, to remember, to think about, to meditate on. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, I think it's in verse, starting in verse 8, Paul says to meditate on whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report. Those are two of many things in that list that Paul gives. So the point is, we are told that there is this loveliness, there is this goodness, there's this praiseworthiness and pleasure associated with life with God. So when you are choosing Jesus, when you are choosing God's way of life, what you are choosing is an eternal, forever evolving, if you will, forever progressing, a glory to glory experience of life to life, grace to grace, goodness to goodness that never ends. That is the experience of God because he is eternally good. And so when it comes to those of you listening or watching this podcast and you've like asked the question, you know, why are people telling me at least well-meaning Christian parents or adults in my life that I'm supposed to wait till marriage to have sex? And, and, and why does it seem like there's so much emphasis placed on waiting and celibacy until you get married? The point is that when you do marriage God's way, just like when we do anything in life God's way, you are actually choosing to submit yourself to the absolute best for your life. This is not supposed to be legalistic. This is not obey God's commandments because if you don't, he's going to smite you. That's legalism. That is the, the old covenant. That is not the life that we've been given. The Bible says in Hebrews that we have a better covenant established on better promises. And the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's his grace and his love that has moved us to love him as a response to his love. So when you are choosing the way of God, when you are choosing to do life his way, when you are choosing to keep his commandments, Deuteronomy says, for example, I think in chapter five, that what you are choosing is long life, full of good days that it may be well with you in the land in which you dwell. So the idea there is that when we do life God's way, we are doing life in the way that produces the very good or extremely pleasurable characteristics that God first ordained and established when he created the world in Genesis. God is the one who created life. He knows what makes it worth living. And so if you want to have a good life, God says, obey me, trust me, and life will be good and it will be eternally good, which is why in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, it says that now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And if now is the day of salvation, then eternal life begins right now. We're not waiting until we get to heaven to experience eternal life. Eternal life is, is so vast and it's, it's so pervasive, if you will, that it is experienced in this present life now. We're redeemed from the corruption and the sin and the decay of the law and of the flesh. And we're ushered into an experience of life that is a taste of eternity imminently right now. And so... Right now, for example, speaking personally, I'm living in my marriage, having it established on the word of God. So what I'm actually experiencing is the sinlessness of eternity that has made its way, that's kind of uh, sort of injected itself, if you will, into my life 
my experience of life and the ex- experience of life that my wife has now too. And we're actually living in a heaven-like culture in our present condition and in our present life. So when you choose holiness, when you choose sexual purity, what you are choosing is heaven itself, eternal life to come into your present existence, which is why if you're going to hope in God for an eternity after you die, but you don't want to give him your life today, what you're saying is that you want the corruption of sin more than than you want heaven. So how can you sincerely say you want heaven on the day you die if you don't want to give him your life today? Because right now is still another day in the process of eternity. If you won't give him today, how can you say sincerely that you want to give him your eternity after you die? And so my my challenge to you and my, my admonition and exhortation even to you with this episode and, and this video for the podcast is to show you almost pleading with you, almost begging with you to realize that when you choose sexual purity, you are choosing very good characteristics. You are choosing a very good life that is eternal in essence. It's heaven in essence that touches your experience, that touches your sexuality, that touches your marriage in a way that's, I would say, unfathomable. It's it's uniquely life with God as he designed it. And so I don't want anybody, any Christian especially, to associate obeying God with obligation, with legalism, with the burdensome life under the obligations of commandments. This is about the rest that we have with Christ. That's why Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, if you come to me, I will give you rest. And so when you say, I'm going to obey God and I'm going to wait for marriage, you're essentially saying, I'm going to sacrifice the inferior life of submission to sin to go for the superior and best possible experience that God could ever give me, which is sexual purity, which is celibacy until marriage. And and that's why God gives us these commandments, because it's his best. And this is an incredible promise, because this actually means that when I'm sexually pure, I'm actually living in the, the essence of heaven itself. The reason why heaven is so amazing is because there's no sin there. The Bible says in heaven there's nothing that defiles, nothing that decays. There is no sin there. So to the degree you experience holiness in your life, you experience heaven. If you want to know what heaven is like, live holy right now. That's why in 1 Peter it says that that he says, Be holy, for I am holy. Therefore you also be holy in all your conduct. That's what the Bible says in 1 Peter. That's in uh, chapter 1. It also says there, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in earth, on earth, with fear knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. But then it says, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the point is that don't live in that former ignorance. Don't live in that former sin because it is corruption. You've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, which has established your value and your worth and the life that's in store for you. And so if you want to settle for sin, you're settling for decay. And so 
I want you guys to really and, and just deeply understand this for that, that you associate so that you associate your sexuality and a pure and free sexuality with the extreme, intense, abundant pleasure that is identical to the Genesis experience that Adam and Eve had before sin came into the world. That's what I believe is God's plan for our marriages. Again, Hebrews 13, 4 says the marriage bed should be undefiled. Sexuality should be without stain of sin. That's what undefiled means, okay? So, now another thing that I'd like to get into with this is what is it about the devil's counterfeit that makes it tempting? Why is sexual temptation or the sin for sexual temptation, why is it such a difficult thing for people? Why do people wrestle with it? Why is there a struggle? I am arguing in this episode that the struggle comes when we believe something false Number one, about what God's best is, and number two, about about the devil's counterfeit. Here's what I mean by this. Notice something that, and this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe. It says that the devil himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Why is this so critical to understand? The Bible makes it clear that the devil, in order to successfully tempt someone, has to give himself the appearance of something angelic. The devil has to make himself look like God in order to get us to be attracted to what he offers. What does that mean? The devil has to borrow from God's goodness to make sin attractive. So when you are being faced with a temptation for sin, you are being faced with the devil's contoured perversion of what is truly and genuinely God's goodness. So when you're choosing sin, you're choosing something that is like off-brand off God, right? It's like, not only is it off-brand, but it, it, it is a lie, it's poison, it's deceit, it's destruction. And so don't you find it interesting that in order for sin to be attractive at all, the devil has to give it an appearance of God-given light. He has to show up as an angel to make us want to follow him. So what does that say about the devil? That by nature, truly, he's disgusting, he's gross, he's not worth your time, not worth your attention, not worth your thought. He's not worth giving any moment to entertaining thoughts or temptations to sin. Why? Because you should know, based on the instruction of Scripture, that everything that he offers is just a perverted, counterfeit, off-brand version of what God says is his best for you. That's just, that's the reality. And so this understanding has brought me to such a place of, of, of wisdom in the way that I approach sexuality and marriage is that now being married, when that tempting thought or that, that lustful thought, I should say the temptation for it, pops up in my mind, which happens to everyone, I don't look at it and think, man, I just really got to avoid that thinking because I, just, I don't want to entertain that thought too long because otherwise I might act on it or I might meditate on it. I don't treat it with an attitude of timidity or fear because I understand it is a lie. It's not from God. It is trying to deceive me into believing that what I now have in the presence of God is for whatever reason not good enough. But the Bible says that what I'm experiencing now in obeying God is very good. It is extremely pleasant. It is the fullness of joy and the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. It is 
the garden and the tree of life in the person of Jesus and obedience to him that I'm experiencing when I submit myself to the will of God. So when the devil comes along and says, hey, you should maybe think about this, you should maybe go there, you should maybe look at this on the internet, the, the immediate response that my heart has is not fear, it's not weakness, it's not this kind of infirmity or frailty, it is a strength established and grounded in the fact that what the devil is now presenting is disgusting, it's gross, it is an absolute lie. By nature, you remove that guise, remove the cloak that makes it look attractive, and all that you see is death, destruction, and decay, right? And so I'm going to read for you guys uh, a portion out of Undefiled that kind of summarizes this really well. So if you read in Proverbs chapter 5, says this, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps lay hold of hell. This is Solomon talking to his son about the danger of sexual impurity, of promiscuity. And he says, hey, if you're going to go after the immoral woman, or I would just say sexual immorality to keep it general, he's saying it's you know, her feet go down to death and her steps lay hold of hell, interestingly enough. And then he says, remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. So he says the end, the at last moment when you choose sexual, sexual immorality, he says, is that your flesh and your body will be consumed. It ends in death. It's an absolute lie. And so then he says, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he who does so destroys his own soul. Think about that. You destroy your own soul. And then he says, Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. And that's in Proverbs chapter 6, okay? So, then, contrarily, God, on the other hand, keeping continuing to read here, offers true pleasure, the kind that he inspired. And here's what Proverbs has to say about God's kind of pleasure, and I would call it the pleasure of godly wisdom. Interestingly enough, the Bible actually uses the picture of a woman with the name of wisdom. So in Proverbs chapter 8 especially, it talks about wisdom as a woman that is trying to allure a person into the presence of God. And so it says that riches and honor are with me. This is the woman of wisdom speaking, godly wisdom. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue is better than choice silver. God's idea of pleasure is that which lasts forever. That's why it's better than even the best of the world's riches. The Bible often gives it another name. It's called everlasting life. And so what we are experiencing when we choose godly wisdom is actually a, a pleasure that dwarfs what the world tries to offer. So when you're talking about marriage, the Christian marriage with others, when you're talking about a pure and godly sexuality with others, your emphasis should not be on 
I've chosen righteousness because the Bible says I'm supposed to avoid sin. Because then it just sounds legalistic. It sounds like you're obligated to obey God because if you don't, he's going to smite you. You want the world to hear on your lips, on your mouth, that I have chosen the life of God because it's life everlasting. Because it's pleasures forevermore. Because it's God's best for my life because it's free from the decay and corruption of the lust that is in this present world. So what you're doing is emphasizing the blessing of eternal life over the fear of eternal death. And that's the key change that needs to take place. And that's what I want to be our lifestyle. So I'm going to remind you of a verse in Proverbs 10:22, which I quoted earlier, that the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Sin is good for a moment, produces negative side effects. The wisdom and the blessing and the holiness of God is a richness of life, an enhancement to life that adds no sorrow with it. There's no side effects. It's always and only good. There's no shame in a life lived in submission to God. No regret, no bad memories, no anxious thoughts, no ramifications. Although choosing righteousness may be uncomfortable to the flesh for a moment or at first, It's a moment of discipline that leads to an endless blessing. On the other hand, there is no such thing as sin that has permanent good. Sin always ends in death and decay. All right. Now, there's one more verse I can quote to you in James 1.15, which says that no man is tempted, or a man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed, but when, and sin, when it's fully grown, produces death. It says it starts as a temptation, it gives birth or conceives, Uh, that desire, and that produces sin, and sin when it is fully grown produces death or brings forth death. That's in James chapter 1, verse 15. And so, what I would like to say to bring us to the conclusion of this episode is this statement, or this paragraph, this is also in chapter 2 of Undefiled, and it says this, the devil can only succeed in tempting you if he can get you to believe that there's something better in choosing rebellion. The sinister nature to this tactic lies in the fact that sin looks pretty on the surface, but it quickly uncovers itself and reveals its monstrous intent. God's desire, on the other hand, is to show us that knowing evil produces nothing good. Not just experiencing evil, but even knowing about evil. Even that produces nothing good. And that everything good is found only in compliance with his wisdom. And his wisdom says that righteousness is the source of his eternal pleasure. Amen. So good. Okay, so now when it comes to marriage itself, what I want you guys to take away as kind of a conclusion for this episode is that your marriage being healthy, your marriage being godly is identical to your marriage being extremely pleasurable. There should be joy in your marriage. There should be the life. There should be energy, this vitality, there should be that that honeymoon phase that we talk about that we praise so much for those first one or two years. It's not it's not supposed to fizzle out. It's not supposed to end. The Bible says that love, true love, God's love is a fire that cannot be quenched. It's supposed to always and forever remain good glory to glory. It says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 and in, in the Psalms, it says that we should go from strength to strength. And if love is a fire that cannot be quenched, the only thing that can cause that fire to seem to be dim is for you to stop investing in your marriage with those same first love gestures and acts of romance. And so this is about you investing into a marriage that will be always and forever until the day you die, I should say, 
extremely pleasurable and full of joy, fullness of joy, right? Which is your marriage kept closely knit with the wisdom of God, pleasure at his right hand forevermore, right? Okay, so now that this is your understanding, I my action step, really, for you guys watching this, if you're married, actually, even if you're an individual, even if you're single, it applies to everyone essentially the same way. I want you to think about what your sexuality is like right now. If you're single, this would refer to what you believe about your body, what you believe about your sexual organs, what you believe about the future for the sex life that you you want in a marriage, if that's what you're hoping for. If you're married, this is about your present experience of sex and just realize, okay, is what I think about sex or when I think about sex, when I experience it, when I look back on it, is it always entirely and only a good pleasant life-giving giving memory or meditation because when God's pleasure makes its way into a marriage it makes it an experience of that eternal life that 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 pleasure forevermore that adds no sorrow with it and so I'm saying do not give up on your sexuality and your experience of it until you have touched and can taste in every moment that sinless, pure, and holy experience that has no stain, that has no corruption, no decay, no negative side effects, and it is it is the life of God experience in that chamber of intimacy in your marriage. That's, that's what the Lord wants for you. That's what my wife and I have been pursuing, and I will say that it is a process. There's some, some things you have to let go of. There's some habits for your sex life that you have to let, let go of. There's some some memories that you'll have to have your conscience, your mind washed from through just spending time in the word of God and in prayer, but go after this. My wife especially says about herself, as far as one of her goals, that that she will not settle for anything less than perfect peace. And that is and is something that I'm, I'm very proud of her as far as something that she's included in her personal con confessions. And that's what I want you guys to include too, that just say, you know what, I'm not gonna settle for anything less than God's best because what he has made available, the Bible says, is everything that I need for life and godliness, that it has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, we, we, we may be partakers of the divine nature. It says that, that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to us through the knowledge of, of him who's called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us those exceedingly great and precious promises. That's in 2 Peter chapter 1, like verses 2 through 4, 2 through 5, around there somewhere. So look up the verses that I've mentioned in this episode too. I've kind of just been flying through a lot of scriptures, but this is like a, a key principle when it comes to sexuality. You got to know that when I hear the word pleasure, it means that it matches with, it is identical with the presence of God. Pleasure is the presence of God. The presence of God is pleasure. Anything away from God is displeasure and pain. So when you associate sexuality with pleasure, it is not with an orgasm. It's not with sensuality. What you're associating it with is the joy and the life of the presence of God, okay? So that's what I have for you guys in this episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate your support. Share this podcast with others because I know it's going to heal a lot of people's marriages and, and their sexuality and their self-image and bodily image and things like that as well. So thanks again. I encourage you to purchase Undefiled, the book on the website, valiantmi.com slash store. Get yourself a copy. You get some copies for your friends. You can buy it on the website. Free shipping, 16 bucks. 
and 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 you'll you'll have a copy of your own to be able to read through and then listen to this podcast or watch this podcast together with it. That's all that I have, and I will see you guys next Thursday. Have a blessed day.